You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 70. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. I am so excited for yet another episode of season two. So far, season two is going so well. Thank you guys so much for sharing the shows and for listening. I really, truly appreciate it. In today's episode, we're talking with Alexandra Franzen. Alexandra is someone who I have been following in the blog world for several years on her blog, alexandrafranzen.com. She's a copywriter, a wordsmith, an author, an advice columnist, I would even hazard to say. She is really an amazing thought leader who has worked with some of the biggest names in the blog world as well. And she's just someone that I truly look up to and really appreciate, especially when it comes to things like phrasing things through writing that truly can transform or how to handle difficult situations and to communicate in a way that leaves people better off than before. In this episode with Alexandra, we're going to be discussing a lot of juicy stuff. One of the things that is central to this theme for today is the message that Alexandra heard inside that flipped one of her least productive days into one of her best days of the year. And it's something that we can all keep in mind throughout our days as well. In addition, I'm going to be sharing the Jonathan Fields Three Baskets Theory that I have shared in the Room Magazine article that I wrote and have kind of started to share a few other places as well. So it's a great reminder for those that have heard the Three Basket Theory by Jonathan Fields, or if you haven't heard it, it's truly a really, really interesting insight into how to get the most in all areas of our lives. And we're going to share the habit change that Alexandra has taken to improve her mental clarity and her writing. And I'm going to ask Alexandra to share what I believe is my favorite thing. I go back to her website over and over again to find this post on saying no in order to make it a positive experience for both people. So we'll talk about how to say no, when to say no, and get Alexandra's advice there. Let's go to the show. Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited. Let's get started with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are. All right, let's go back to age eight. I published my very first book at age eight, self-published, ahead of the curve. (laughs) It was a coloring book, actually, where I drew pictures of flying unicorns, and then I made copies and gave them to my classmates, or rather, I should say, I sold them to my classmates. I was going to say, did you sell them? I totally did. I was a budding entrepreneur. I sold them for, I believe, a quarter a piece. And they were very popular until my operation got shut down by (laughs) my teacher who told me that I was not allowed to sell things to my classmates. But, you know, in my mind, I thought I was just responding to market demand. These were very uh, hot items. (laughs) So let's fast forward about 10 years, age 18, 19, 20, 21, around that realm. I continued my writing career working as a student journalist. And I actually wound up working for my university magazine, which I think at the time reached about 16,000 people. So pretty broad reach for a young writer with no idea what she was doing. But that was kind of my first foray into journalism and that style of storytelling. After that, I got a job in public broadcasting. After that, I worked for a marketing agency. And kind of in the mix there, I also uh, launched my own business. Though at the time, I didn't think of it as a business. I thought of it as 
let's find a way to scrabble together a living and not lose the house that I foolishly bought at age 24. You bought a house at 24? I did. For some reason at that time in my life, it was like the thing that I wanted to do on my own to like really show my financial independence. And somehow I managed to do it and then immediately thought, oh, no, this is not what I want. But (laughs) why do you think that you had that specific drive to get a house at such a young age? Financial independence has always been really important to me. And having a space, a sacred sanctuary to call my own, it just for some reason felt really important. And buying a house felt like the ultimate expression of that. What I learned through that experience is that, you know, wow, look, I can do it. I can, you know, make this happen for myself. But actually, home ownership wasn't, in fact, what I wanted. And I sort of had to, like, walk that funny path to figure that out. I have since sold the house, and now I'm happily renting. And it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You got it out of your system. Got it out of my system, exactly. But bought the house around the same time that I launched my business, which was a very challenging little tornado to be in. Now, fast forward another five years or so, very different lifestyle, running my own one-woman communication consultancy, working as a ghostwriter, copywriter, essayist, advice columnist. Basically, my dream has come true. I get to play with words for a living and no longer so much into the unicorns and the, and the, the flying pegasuses, but um, selling other kinds of books now. Yes. And you're very good at what you do. Your writing is so tangible. That's the word that comes to mind. It's expressive and it's always the right word you didn't know should be there as you're reading it. So yes, you definitely have a huge talent there. I remember reading the story about how you got hot chocolate. Is there some story there? Yes. (laughs) So I think we all have these little moments in our childhood that are almost like little breadcrumb trails or clues as to what our future career is going to be. I think, you know, looking back, we all have these little moments. One of my little moments that was a clue that perhaps I was going to be a writer or work with words in some capacity was when I was about four or five years old, right before the age that most kids learn how to read. And my parents took me to the local coffee shop one morning and they were standing in line, you know, waiting to place their order. And I didn't really know how to read yet, but I knew how to recognize two very important words, which were hot and chocolate. (laughs) And I saw these two words sort of placed together. I didn't even recognize them as words, almost just like as visual symbols that I knew meant, you know, chocolatey deliciousness. And I pointed to it and I said to my parents, mommy, daddy, I want hot chocolate. And they, thinking that I couldn't recognize these words yet, were trying to, you know, get me to not drink sugar. They wanted me to choose something healthier. So they said, oh, you know, sorry, sweetie, they don't have that here. And I just kept pointing to those words on the billboard or whatever. And I said, no, they do. Hot chocolate. I want hot chocolate. And my parents sort of looked at each other like, oh, my God, here we go. And lo and behold, I got my wish. So what I learned in that moment was if you use the right words at the right time with the right people with a smile on your face, you tend to get what you want. And that was um, (laughs) a formative moment in my life that has definitely carried through to this day. I love that story. It really captures exactly what you're saying, which I think a lot of us miss this point. Writing is there to convey a response from someone. And that's really what you're able to do so expertly with all of the words that you choose. Let's talk about something you are actually going to be penning in the future because you've written several books now, but you have a new one coming. Do you want to tell us about what it is and how you got to it? Absolutely. Well, I'll start by telling you the story that kind of segues into what the book is going to be about. I think it was a Saturday. I was here in Portland, Oregon. It was a very kind of soggy, gray, rainy, sort of I want to take a nap all day kind of day. 
In fact, I wound up sleeping in, which I almost never do. And I didn't wake up till noon. In fact, my boyfriend had to basically drag me out of bed because I probably would have slept all day long. It was just that kind of day. And I got up, it was rainy, it was dark. I drove home, there was traffic. I finally got home. At this point, it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. I've literally accomplished nothing today other than like, you know, putting a toaster waffle in my mouth or something like that. And I was just having that feeling of, ugh, like, I guess today is just a waste. You know, I'll, I'll start up again tomorrow and hopefully have a better day tomorrow. And I was, you know, all ready to just kind of sink into my bed and order a pizza and watch Netflix and, you know, just kind of waste the entire day. And suddenly, and I don't know where this little voice came from, but there literally was like a specific voice in my mind that said, today is not over yet. It literally like stopped me in my tracks as I was walking towards my bed, ready to crawl inside. And I just heard it again. Today is not over yet. And I stopped. And in that moment, I just, I made a decision. I was like, you're right, little voice inside. Today is not over yet. And in that moment, I made a complete turnaround. I went immediately to my computer. I found the address of my local yoga studio that I hadn't visited for quite a while. I noticed they had a class starting in just a few minutes. I hustled over to the yoga studio. I got there early. I had this wonderful conversation with the teacher and we bonded and it was beautiful. I had a great class. And then afterwards, I went and I soaked in a sauna and I got a massage and I came home and I made a wonderful meal and I talked to my mom. And like basically the day in the remaining hours that were left, it actually went from being my worst day of the year to being probably the most meaningful and productive and energizing day of my year. And it turned in a moment just because I decided that I was going to use the remaining time I had available to the best of my abilities. Today is not over yet. I actually that evening sat down and wrote four different essays that were just not going to happen unless I had made that decision for myself. So that idea, that kind of visceral 180 turnaround of, you know, no matter what's happened so far today, it's not over yet. There's still time to do something positive, loving, productive, helpful for yourself or somebody else. I love that. And I'm going to make that the theme of my next book, as you mentioned a moment ago. One of the things that just struck me as you are telling the story, we had talked earlier before we got on this call that we were going to talk about this. I kind of knew everything up until what you actually did that day. I really expected this work ethic motivation to today is not over yet, most likely because I'm coming off of a serious case of burnout where I was putting my career before all the other areas of my life recently, and I'm now unraveling from all of that. But what I love is that you surprised me by saying, I went to yoga, I went to the sauna, I got a massage, I talked to my mom. You did all of the other areas of your life rather than forcing work to be first. And at first, I didn't even expect you to say that you did any work-related activities at all. But then even at the end, you did say you had the energy to do four essays. I think that's so powerful. And I think it's just an aha moment for me. And I think others too might have assumed, if I'm going to take the attitude of today is not over yet, that means I need to be focusing on my effectiveness in my career first and foremost, rather than the other areas. Yes. And this has been for you, for me, probably for almost everyone listening, this is a lesson that we have to continually relearn. You cannot produce your best work on an empty tank. It's just like driving a car. I mean, it's the simplest metaphor ever, but it's true. And what I mean when I say, you know, adopt the attitude of today is not over yet. I'm not saying 
So run to your computer, hunch over and crank something out. What I'm saying is make today count, you know, make it feel meaningful, whatever that means for you. That might mean, look, today's not over. There's still time to read a bedtime story to my child and have a five minute moment of bonding. Or today is not over yet. There's still time to get to the gym and sweat and really challenge myself in a way that I haven't all day or all week. Or today is not over yet. There's still time to get a manicure. Yes. <laughs> if it feels right or if it feels appropriate or if I'm inspired or whatever, sure, sit down, work, write, record your podcast, whatever it is. But it's not just about work. It's about making today feel alive and energizing like it mattered. One of our guests for season two is Jonathan Fields. Have you heard about his three basket theory? No, tell me. Okay, so there's three baskets. There are connections to ourselves, source, and other people. There's the basket for our vitality, which is how much we're taking care of ourselves personally. And then there's contribution is the third basket, which is something contributing to other people in our lives, to those in need, or in our careers, perhaps. Our strongest basket will always be limited by the weakest basket. We can't actually keep pouring more and more, and this is what I was doing previously, pouring all of this energy into the contribution basket. For me, it was in career, but it could be out of balance in any of the three baskets. The strongest one will always be counterbalanced by the weakest and eventually got to the point where it was so dry in the other two baskets that I had nothing left to give the career basket anymore. And his theory is that in order to grow, for example, the contribution basket, it's not about pouring more into the contribution basket but it is to pour more into the vitality and connections basket and to focus there. And naturally, it will have an effect on the contribution. Absolutely. I literally could not agree more. I've actually experienced that very recently, starting kind of at the end of last year, mostly at the beginning of this year, kind of New Year's cliche style. I started working out at the gym with a lot more discipline and devotion and consistency and commitment. I even hired a personal trainer, which made me feel like Gwyneth Paltrow or something, but (laughs) it felt like the right thing to do. And what I've noticed is that as I've started working out really consistently and like really almost thinking of myself as an athlete and just getting in there every day, at least an hour, sometimes more, I cannot tell you the effect it has had on my mental clarity, on my overall productivity as a writer because of that precious hour that I take for myself every day, everything else I do is better intellectually, we know this. And yet, as you point out, we so often just kind of ignore it or like put work first because we think that we have to like grind through that particular assortment of basket items before (laughs) to actually take care of ourselves. And it's completely backwards. What value surfaced that made this dedication to the gym so important to you? I've always been a fairly active person. I did a lot of dance as a teenager and in my early 20s, I've always done yoga. So I've always kind of had some kind of physical practice. However, I noticed that after I started my business about five years ago, I just started to kind of consistently deprioritize my body. And it wasn't like I gained 100 pounds. Like It wasn't like something physical or visible happened exactly. But energetically, I could feel that I was just sort of more sedentary and my brain was a little foggier and I just wasn't making movement as much of a priority as it needed to be. So what happened at the beginning of this year, it wasn't even almost a conscious decision, but I think I started to look at fitness as an experiment. I literally said to myself, I'm just going to 
go to the gym every day and see if I notice an effect on myself, almost like a science experiment. And of course I did. And that only further motivated me to keep going back and going back and going back. Also, another little adjustment that I made, and this is kind of personal and emotional, is that I have a friend right now who is very, very sick. And this is a friend that I used to work out with quite a while ago. He has cancer and he's not doing well. He's fighting really hard, but it's, it's been a very, very tough battle. And I started almost dedicating some of my workouts to him, almost like you would say grace before a meal. Like I would actually think to myself, this one's for you, Nick. And I would just go hit that bicycle hard or whatever it was. So the two things to sum it up that I did were, one, I started to look at exercise as an experiment to notice the effects it was having on the rest of my life. And two, I found kind of a deeper emotional motivation to go above and beyond just, oh, wouldn't it be fun to be able to bench press 90 pounds or whatever, like kind of coming at it from a, almost a spiritual perspective really helped me as well. That was a very long winded answer. But now you know why I go to the gym. This is something that I really enforce in my class and with my students is to really look at things with a sense of curiosity and experimentation rather than this forever commitment that scares us so much we don't even try <laughs> to take the first step. It also gives us the flexibility to say, hey, I don't need to be committed to this forever because it's not giving me the results that I thought it would. And you're no longer feeling shame or guilt around the fact that it may no longer serve you to do this for the rest of your life. The experimenting just gives you this chance to give it a shot. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that just popped into my mind is I think often, especially when it comes to things like exercise and fitness, often we come at it from a very sort of superficial place. Like I want to look great in a bikini or, you know, I think I need to lose 20 pounds for whatever reason. And those types of motivations, at least for me, never really seem to stick because they're not really that deep. They don't create that like lasting fire that's going to carry you through tough times. They're shiny pennies. <laughs> shiny pennies, exactly. And again, like, it's not that they're wrong. Like, if you want to look great in a bikini, like, you know, you go, girl or guy, do your thing, whatever. But another kind of little adjustment or choice that I made at the beginning of this year was rather than setting an aesthetic goal for myself, I set a performance-related goal. So I actually have a goal right now of being able to do one pull-up. So if you don't know what a pull-up is, it's where you, you know, put your hands on that metal bar and you lift your entire body weight up and you get your chin all the way up to the bar and you're just using the strength of your arms and your shoulders and your lats to pull yourself up. I have never in my life been able to do even one pull-up. I've just never had the upper body strength. So my goal this year is to be able to do just one. What's fun about that is every Friday with my trainer, it's pull-up day, and we measure my progress, and we see, you know, can I get up even just one more centimeter than last week? And it's a really neat way to gauge how I'm doing without relying on sort of external or aesthetic cues that maybe aren't that healthy for my mind to even worry about. That's awesome. Going from the have level of success to the doing level of success. Totally. Yeah. But I think you actually have values, which is the third level of success that you're actually acting upon. And then you live from those values. You're dedicating this to other people and you're going with the sense of curiosity about the effects on your life. And then the lower level is the performance goal. And then you end up looking healthy and strong because that's what you're doing through the actions you take. It's a really beautiful way of looking at living with intention. Yeah, I'm glad I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're totally doing it. Oh, let's go back to this concept of today is not over yet. I don't know how far you are in the writing process, but what are you going to take us through? So this book is in the very, very early kind of germination stage right now when we're recording this podcast. But I'll walk you through the basic structure that I'm thinking 
I'd love your feedback, actually, and perhaps your listeners if they feel a need to chime in. So I think I'm going to begin by telling, you know, my personal today is not over yet story. And I actually have quite a few today is not over yet moments in my life. As I look back, you know, there've actually been a few significant moments where I kind of made that 180 turnaround for myself and created a new path. So I'm going to begin by telling that story. Then I'm going to actually go into the psychology and the science of mental toughness. This is a really fascinating topic. I am not a psychologist. I am not a, you know, an exercise physiologist. I don't have a PhD in any of this material, but I've actually spoken to and interviewed a lot of people who I would consider to be experts on the topic of mental strength and mental toughness. So I'm going to talk about, number one, why it's so hard to commit to certain choices or goals, even though you know you want to or you need to. So first, we're just going to talk about, you know, why is this so difficult for people, first of all? Then we're going to talk about, you know, well, what are some ways that we can sort of enhance our mental toughness, that that part of you that is almost beyond just willpower, that part of you that just says, absolutely, I'm doing this, no question about it, it's happening. Like, I'm really curious about learning how to strengthen that almost like it's a muscle in your arm or your leg. Changing your standards. Changing your standards, absolutely. Holding yourself to a higher standard of excellence. And really being able to trust yourself, you know, to trust that you absolutely will do this thing that you've said you're going to do. You're not going to disappoint yourself or anyone else. I think when you can move through life feeling like I absolutely trust myself to get the job done, that is an incredible place to operate from. I'm sure you can relate to that with all of your work around intentionality as well. And then the third section of the book, and this is the piece that I'm not 100% sure about yet, but I think what I'd like to do is just do a very kind of quick hit list of maybe like 80 different things that today still has enough time for you to do. So for example, today is not over yet. You still have time to call your mom and have a meaningful conversation. Today is not over yet. You still have time to do something helpful for someone other than yourself. Or today is not over yet. You still have time to sweat. So kind of an assortment of things that you still have time to do today that can really elevate the quality of your entire day. And I'll have like a little story or essay for each one, along with some very practical kind of playful tips and things to do. And some of those things will be more serious and some of them will be a little bit more frivolous and lighthearted. But the overall message, again, is, you know, even if it's 11.59 p.m. tonight, you still have time to do something to make today better than the way it was a moment ago. I love that. And I think it's so Alexandra Franzen for you to do one of those lists because (laughs) for the years of reading your blog, I know how often you do these amazing lists of things that people can use, whether it's how to say no to something, to someone in a certain scenario, or things you can do in a certain amount of time. That's so classic you. I think that you totally should include something like that. Yay, I'm glad to hear that feedback. Yeah, I'm really excited about this project. I think it's going to be super fun to create and hopefully motivating and inspiring for others to read. Just that title alone motivates and resonates in a strong way. Let's actually segue from today is not over yet to what we just said, which is you're really good at helping people with tools and lists that they can use to help select choices or to phrase things for communication. We've talked briefly that one of the things when you say today is not over yet, you're going to decide to make change a part of your life. And that may involve saying no or finding ways to communicate those changes you're going to be making to other people. I would love to get your feedback to things like saying no or making these changes that may come with the idea of today is not over yet. 
Absolutely. I know that for myself, I know for you, because we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, and I'm sure for a lot of people listening, the very simple act of saying no or of backing out of a commitment that you've already made once you've realized that you really can't or don't want to do it, this can be very challenging for a lot of reasons. And a lot of emotion gets wrapped up in the act of saying no or the act of saying, oops, I changed my mind. I have a lot of templates on my website with literally word for word scripts that can help people to say no gracefully and effectively. But sort of the overall philosophy that I bring to saying no and really to all forms of communication, and this may sound a little kind of, you know, Pollyanna or overly positive or sugary, but it's really not. And here's what you can think about as you're writing or communicating. How can I leave the person I'm speaking to in better condition than I found them? How can I leave the person I'm speaking to or the person I'm writing to in better condition than I found them? And if you approach your communication, even saying no from that standpoint of I'm saying no and I'm also going to uplift you and energize you in the process, that's a really unique way to communicate and it creates the type of communication that no matter what you're talking about or saying, whether you're saying yes or no, the other person walks away feeling like, wow, I'm enriched from this conversation. So to give you an example of what that might look like in a really practical way, let's say somebody writes to me and they say, hey, Alex, I wrote a book. Could you read it and give me your feedback? I really appreciate your opinions. For me, that is an absolute no. <laughs> I, I love you to death. Congratulations. Amazing. I have, do not have the time nor the inclination to give my free opinions on people's books that they really, I just can't do it, right? It doesn't fit into my life. Maybe if I had an army of clones, I could offer that kind of free service, but it's just not reasonable for me at this time. And this happens to me quite often. So if I were to respond to that person from sort of a negative place, I might say, you know, no, I'm not able to do that. And uh, I do not offer that kind of free service. And, and how dare you? I'm insulted that you even asked, right? That was one <laughs> way to say no. But if I was going to say no from the perspective of, okay, look, I want to say no, but I actually want to leave this person in better condition than I found them, here's what I might say. I might say, hey, opening with, you know, kind of gratitude or acknowledgement, thank you for writing. I'm honored that you want my feedback on your book. And by the way, congratulations on writing a freaking book. That is amazing. Look, Offering my feedback in this way is not something I'm able to do right now, but here are three resources that I think you'll really love. And then I could offer them a referral to a writing coach or an editor or a blog post or a podcast on the publishing industry or whatever that might be useful to them. And then closing again with acknowledgement. Again, thanks for reaching out. I'm really proud of you. And I know that whatever you choose to do next is going to be absolutely amazing. Love me. So that's an example of saying no, where it's a totally positivity charged experience for both of us. I feel great about that no. And this person now has some resources and, and things that maybe they'd never even considered before. Maybe what I'm offering them is even better than what they were initially asking for. So no, but with a huge dose of love is often a beautiful way to approach this. Oh my God, that's why you're so good at this. Because <laughs> you see it this way. And I love that you're giving us really the underpinnings of all of those 10 ways to say no, because I have looked up that post. I'm going, you know, she had that great post about saying no. How can I do that? And I'll go try to get some inspiration from it. But now we know what the secret sauce is. And one of the things I thought was so powerful when you explained the philosophy was you said how you're going to say no and leave them better off than when they came to you. 
You didn't say the word but there. You didn't say, no, but I'm going to leave them better off. It just is a different energy about it than saying no and. It has like a much more positive experience for you writing that letter versus approaching it with no, but I'm going to try to do this. Absolutely. No and. (laughs) Yes. No and. I think that's really good. That's your new mantra. Yeah. I think it makes all the difference. It's a subtle shift, but I think it's important to underline because it's not about us feeling like we have to then, because we maybe hurt their feelings, make them feel better. You're not coming from that place. Because sometimes I feel like I'm like afraid to say no if it might hurt their feelings. So I might be coming at it with the no but mentality and I need to come with the no and. Absolutely. You know, if your intention, because I know you're all about intention, is to leave the other person in better condition than you found them, to uplift, to inspire, to encourage, to provide a resource, you are never going to hurt their feelings because your intention, you know, the core of what you're trying to express, which is encouragement, will shine through. Even if the final answer or outcome is no, what they'll hear is yes. (laughs) And that's what you want. Yeah, hopefully they're not still disappointed. What do you think about that? In the back of my head, I'm like, but they still wanted me to read the book. Right. It is possible that they will still be disappointed. And at the risk of sounding, you know, very kind of like life coachy, psychologisty, you are not responsible for their final emotions. All you can do is enter into this conversation or this email exchange with a clear ringing intention of encouragement. And they're going to, you know, take from that whatever they will. There are people who, for whatever reason, are just going to be furious no matter what. And they're not your concern. But most of the time, if it's a reasonable human being who isn't saddled with a lot of crippling emotional baggage, they will understand, right? They're a reasonable human being just like you. They'll get it and they'll be appreciative that you even took the time to respond in such a caring and thoughtful manner. We've covered the more anonymity-driven no. What about people in our lives that we're going to say no to because our mantras and today is not over yet, changes we want to make involve shifting relationships? Let's say it's your friend or it's a relative or it's someone, you know, a colleague, someone that you really know who is asking you for something and you still need to say no. Same principle applies, but I'll kind of language it a little bit differently in a way that might make more sense for this situation. So this really happened to me recently, actually. Let's say a relative emails you and they want your help with a particular project or they want you to proofread their resume or they want you to post their teenage daughter when she's visiting Portland or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, and you just either can't or don't want to do it because it's you know not in alignment with your values, your priorities, or your time or resources or whatever. My stance is I'm going to say no, and I'm going to offer an alternative form of support. So no, and here's an alternative for you, something that you know maybe is not exactly what you're asking for, but might be quite useful, inspiring, educational, informative nonetheless. So, you know, hey, aunt so-and-so, I'm not able to host your teenage daughter and her punk rock band in my living room on the dates that you're asking for, but here's something you might not have considered. And then I might provide her with some great Airbnb listings in Portland or an awesome youth hostel that perhaps she hadn't considered before. So offering an alternative form of support. Again, maybe they'll be mad. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll be disappointed. Maybe they won't. But you're doing everything in your power to offer something of value, even if it's not the exact yes that they're hoping for. Okay, let's take it to another world. What about a career situation? A boss wants you to do something and you have to say no. Okay, so there's a couple of things at play here in a work dynamic. Number one, a lot of these kinds of sticky, icky scenarios 
can often be prevented if you have very, very clear boundaries or policies in advance. So to give you an example, when I'm working with my clients, I have about anywhere from six to eight clients a year that I'm working with on an ongoing basis. At the beginning of the year, I give them a packet that outlines exactly how we roll. What's you know a reasonable request they can make of me, what's not. And I literally feed them language showing them like, this is exactly the type of question that you can email me. This is not the type of question that you can email me. So by spelling everything out so clearly at the beginning, it really prevents a lot of like situations where I have to go, uh, no, that's not my job or something like that because they already know. So just want to put that out there. Policies, policies, policies can prevent so much drama later down the line. But let's say for whatever reason, your boss or your client or your whatever is emailing you or calling you and they want you to do something that either you don't have time to do or is not part of your job. Let's start with the time issue. My stance here is, again, approaching this conversation from a place of of positivity, encouragement, empowerment, I would probably say something like, hey, this looks like a fantastic project. I can totally see why, you know, we want to make it a priority. Now, just to clarify, these three things are my current top priorities right now. Is this new project my new number one priority and the other ones are being saved for later or how are we approaching this? Basically, what you want to do is sort of in a sense, lovingly force your boss or your client to tell you, you know, this is the top priority or this is not, or we're taking this one off the list so that you have time to do this. You want to get them to sort of triage and prioritize in a way so that you're not just loading more into sort of an already overflowing basket. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's very essentialist of you. Have you read that book, Essentialism? You know, I haven't read that exact book, but literally everyone I know is talking about it. And it reminds me of another book that is called Less by Mark Lesser, which is of a similar kind of minimalist slant, get more done by actually doing less. I've really enjoyed it. We had a few guests on the show, actually, Becky Murphy, who's an illustrator and author. And we also had Katie Richardson of Pudge. She's got an amazing children's accessories brand. And we talked about their philosophies, and they just kept talking about essentialism and how they're rereading it the second time and all these crazy things. So I finally picked it up and I'm really enjoying it. I actually have a question for you. Have you heard of the life-changing magic of tidying up? I have actually. Someone emailed me about this book recently. I'm totally aware of it and you're enjoying it? I am. She has this big premise of you have to hold everything in your hands and ask, does this bring you joy? Mm. And you're not rationalizing it with your ego and your brain. You're actually using your intuition and your heart to tell you whether or not this thing brings you joy. So every single decision for every item that you have in your home, you hold in your hands and you let your intuition lead the way. It is fascinating. As someone who loves exfoliating stuff all the time and has talked a lot about that over the years on my own blog and in the podcast and feels like I do a really good job with that. I still had seven bags of things that left my home because they weren't bringing me joy, but my rationalizations would always make me keep it for one reason or another, which wasn't really necessary. And it's really powerful. It's changed my whole approach to shopping now too. So I I can't recommend it enough. Amazing. It sounds like a soul exfoliation. (laughs) And for anyone else out there listening, totally go read it if you haven't already. It does seem a little woo-woo to some, but even if you just ignore all of that, as I saw one review said that she didn't necessarily agree with everything, but she tried it and she said that the results of actually trying it was well worth it. So is there any other books that you are dying to share with people? Ooh, good books. 
probably the most pivotal book that I read last year, which I have since, and this is not an exaggeration because I've, I've talked about it to my mailing list, to my students, to my clients. I've literally told tens of thousands of people about this book is um, the book Die Empty by Todd Henry. The premise of this book, Die Empty, is in a way similar to the today is not over yet philosophy. It's the idea that we all have a finite amount of time on this planet. And that may be morbid or sad to some, but that's the reality, right? We don't have all the time in the world to become the person that we want to be or create the body of work that we want to create or create the impact that we want to create. We only have a certain amount of time and that time can be up at any moment. So what Todd, the author of Die Empty, encourages you to do is to treat every day as if you are emptying the tank. That is your goal. You want to really make today count. You want to get your best work out of you rather than keeping it bottled inside so that at the end of your life, you can really say, I'm dying empty. My best work is out in the world, not still inside of me where it'll never be released. And I think that's such a powerful message that we all need to hear again and again and again. And what I find is that even if you're already operating at a very high level and holding yourself to impeccably high standards, there's always a little more that you can empty out of the tank. And I think that's it's a good thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're depleting yourself or burning yourself out, but rather, you know, being very intentional with your time so that you're really bringing your best self and your best work into the world every day. I'm glad you did do the little caveat there, because I was just thinking as someone who's just experienced a large burnout period that... I think there has to be a heavy standard of grace with that because to do something sustainably is a totally different experience than to drain yourself every day, every day, every day to the point where you have nothing left to give. Does he have any tips on how to make sure you don't go into the negative territory there? He does. Yeah. And I, I, it's been a while since I read the book, but I do remember that he addresses that. I think what he says in the beginning of the book, which really resonated with me, he kind of addresses this objection is that it's not that you're, you know, sprinting every day and like burning yourself to the core, but rather it really does come back to just intentionality, being really deliberate with how you use your time so that you're dying empty, not just in a work context, but with your relationships. You can say, I really showed up and was really present for my friends or my partner or my family today, rather than coasting through conversations or half looking at my phone the entire time. It's about deliberacy and intentionality more than like depletion, I guess you could say. I think Essentialism or Less, the book that you recommended, would help you identify which things you should be working on and focusing on and letting go of the things that are excessive and draining you to that point of not having any more to give. Absolutely. Going along with this thing you mentioned a moment ago of, of physically holding your possessions in your hands and asking, does this bring me joy? You can do the same thing looking at your calendar or your to-do list. You can look at every single thing that's on your schedule this week and ask, does this bring me joy or does this create bitterness and resentment? And use that as a litmus test to guide which are your real priorities and which are not. That's so funny you say that. That's literally the new audit I'm doing is my calendar and looking at everything I've committed to and literally holding it in my hands. Like you said, it's such a powerful thing, but it's so good after you do the physical space because when you can go on a space, she talks about this clicking point where when you get to a place where all of your things that you have in your space bring you joy, things click and it feels different. I can feel that in some of the rooms I've hit that clicking point in my house. I'm not 100% there yet in every area. I can tell I'm still maybe holding on to a few things that aren't really necessary. I haven't really looked at everything. But the places where I've done it, it's amazingly peaceful and clean and serene. And it, it's just got this whole different feeling to it. 
I know that when my calendar feels that way too, I'm going to hopefully have a similar clicking experience. I just haven't gotten there yet. Have you done that in your own calendar? Oh, yeah. I mean, I do it every week, practically. I think it's a perpetual thing that you have to do. And it's almost like a calendar detox in a way, but it really makes a difference. We all just need more space and time. Everyone is so freaking busy and it's really like soul crushing. Yeah, we actually did an episode right towards the end of season one called Stop the Glorification of Busy. Yeah. I think that in today's society, everyone can be so fixated on this moment and this year and this short sightedness of the fact that our careers, especially for those of us in our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, have decades of work ahead of us that we need to actually look at how we're moving forward in a sustainable way, not just in a sprinting, like you said earlier, way. Absolutely. Yeah, totally on board with that. What doubts or internal resistance have you been facing in your life? Ooh, so much. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, probably the the biggest thing that has been really weighing on me recently, again, ties into this whole concept of tidying up and spending today deliberately like it matters, etc. There are, you know, without naming names or divulging too much personal info, there are a couple conversations that I know I need to have with certain people in my life about things that I am not willing to do anymore. And even though I am, you know, the queen of how to say no, applying that wisdom to your own life is still hard. (laughs) I think that we all know this, you know, it's very easy to sort of give wonderful advice to others that's amazingly helpful. It's a little harder to apply that same advice to yourself sometimes. And really what it boils down to for me is I am absolutely petrified of disappointing people. I never want to disappoint anyone. And that is a strength and a weakness. It's a strength in the sense of I rarely disappoint people, which is great. It's a weakness in the sense of I'm so afraid of disappointing people that it can also hinder me in creating the most productive life or career that I could possibly have. So that's something that's sort of weighing on me. And really how I'm approaching it is just trying to be gentle with myself. And if I feel like today is just not the right day or not the right timing to have this particular conversation, then it's okay. Let it go. Make a little progress. Maybe, you know, draft a couple of talking points or something to get a little closer to that big conversation that needs to happen. Just trying to make progress without punishing myself for not doing everything right now. That's awesome. I love that. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? You know, the thing that comes to mind is uh, related to a quote that I discovered really recently from the dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, who, for those of you who don't know Martha Graham, she was in her time like one of the premier modern dance choreographers in the world. She really like reshaped the world of dance. And she was known for being incredibly evocative and emotional and expressive with her body movements in a way that just wasn't being done in that world. So, She has this amazing quote, which I actually share in a recent article on my website, where she ends the quote by saying, you know, if you are a creative person or you're on a creative path, you're writing, you're coaching, you're speaking or, you know, any kind of work that you're doing, it's not your responsibility to worry about whether your work is good or bad. Your only responsibility is to keep the channel clear. And what she means by that is you have to keep your schedule clear. You have to keep your body operating smoothly and harmoniously. You have to keep your mind clear. You know, don't be hungover all the time, (laughs) things like that. You have to keep the creative channel clear. 
do whatever it takes so that your best ideas can actually flow through you instead of being clogged or blocked because your channel is hindered. And that very simple phrase, keep the channel clear, I really love because there's always little refinements and adjustments we can make, whether it's to our physical space, to our calendar, to our diet, to our fitness, whatever, to keep the channel a little clearer and allow that great work, those great ideas and the best version of you to really emerge. That's my advice. Keep the channel clear. Fight to keep it clear. You know, this is your life. (laughs) Make it important. And I'm saying that to myself just as much as anyone else. But I think it's something we all need to hear. Yeah, it's an amazing values-based intention. Thank you so much, Alexander, for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. What are, I'm like literally like bouncing and like flushed right now. I'm all energized <laughs> by what we've just talked about. That's awesome to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Alexandra, thank you for coming on the show. If you would like to follow up with Alexandra, she does not use social media. So we will find her at alexandrafranzen.com. In addition, for those that are looking for some extra bonuses, this episode, we have those for you. One is a printable quote that says, today is not over yet, with a little quote from Alexandra from today's show that you can print out to remind yourself throughout the day that today is not over yet. In addition, I also talked about how much I love the life-changing magic of tidying up. I have done what Marie Kondo has suggested in the format of how you go through systematically removing things from your lives. One of the things that I found was a little bit challenging as someone with a Kindle reader is that she's very specific about the order of doing things, but there was no specific checklist that I could just print out and then go to town in my stuff and start checking things off and going in the proper order that she suggested. It was kind of tricky to go through like chapter by chapter to try to figure out what the proper order was. So I decided to simplify this for anyone else who has read the book or is going to read the book and will want a checklist that really simplifies the whole thing. So you just print out one sheet and carry it around with you room by room and can check off things as you go. If you would like that, again, it's over on the show notes and the bonuses as well. To get these bonuses, go over to jesslively.com slash Alexandra Franzen. And yeah, hopefully they're just helping you to take this episode to the next level and to start to implement these things in your own life. And I'm excited to say that next week's episode is with our first returning guest who came on the show in season one. I'm not sure if you might guess who it is or not, but... I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on who you think it might be. Feel free to find me on Instagram at Jess C as in cat lively, or you can find me over on Twitter at the same handle until next week. May something wonderful happen to you today. 